Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks, and welcome. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here this day after Thanksgiving. Just a reminder, the markets are open today. Calls are mixed today with volume expected to be very light. Typically, the day after Thanksgiving, we can see some volatile moves, and they might develop as Friday wears on. But usually, it is a fairly stodgy day in the trade, as most of the traders are out for that Thanksgiving vacation. We did get some news from Japan earlier this week. The upper house of the Japanese Congress effectively has approved a revised agreement with the United States that increases the beef safeguard trigger level under the U.S.-Japan trade agreement. Now that does might just sound like some details, but what this does is it raises the total amount of beef that Japan can import before those punitive tariffs start to take effect. And those tariffs, of course, raise the price of American beef in Japan, and it's expected that would hurt demand. So this is good news for the, I think we can say, overall health of the beef sector. And earlier this week, since there's not a lot of folks in the office here this Friday, I had a conversation with Julia Harris. She's the health policy analyst for the Bipartisan Policy Center, and we talked specifically about the health of rural American healthcare. It's seen a lot of changes over the past two years. Julia joined me on Wednesday to discuss what it means. And Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mike. Let's start first. You specialize in rural health. So if you would give us the, the snapshot, how has rural health changed broadly since the start of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so many um, big changes. So but even before COVID, um, rural communities were struggling with hospital closures. They had an older, sicker population, and really a lot of difficulty recruiting and retaining healthcare workers. Um, the pandemic deepened a lot of this crisis. Um, the healthcare workforce challenges in America uh, continue to impact nationally, but really deeply in rural areas. Uh, they already had trouble recruiting and retaining staff, but that became sort of another pandemic on top of COVID. We saw um, many more people sick with COVID and dying from COVID in rural areas. And uh, on the other hand, we also saw the promise of some telehealth flexibilities that were afforded during uh, the public health emergency time, which we are currently still in. And that really made uh, substantial inroads in the convenience and utility of care. And we saw some really interesting things emerge about how people in rural America were using telehealth. Um, and it's really sort of a bright spot among a lot of other difficulties and challenges during the pandemic. You know, it, it has been, as I talk to folks across rural America, the ability to call in particularly for those little things that might have been a visit 20, 30, 40 minutes away for a nurse practitioner for a quick script. Now they can just do it via telehealth. But you mentioned those were afforded because of the pandemic emergency. Julia, what happens as we move farther from the COVID pandemic? Are these telehealth options going to go away? It is possible. And we uh, at the Bipartisan Policy Center are actually working to stop that from happening. So it is anticipated that as we go into next year in 2023, the uh, federal COVID-19 public health emergency will end. And a lot of the flexibilities, um, among them the telehealth flexibilities, are tied to that designation. And <clears throat> many people are looking at, you know, what we, did we get, what did we gain from giving people this kind of access and working very hard to try and um, continue that flexibility going forward. I'll, I'll say one thing, we, we did an actually analysis of traditional Medicare beneficiaries and how did they use telehealth services over the pandemic. And we actually found that many Medicare beneficiaries were newly accessing mental health and substance use treatment via telehealth. So 44% of all behavioral health visits, which is your mental health and substance use treatment visits in 2021 were delivered 
to Medicare beneficiaries via telehealth, and 65% of those were with new providers, new provider relationships. So really a big um, early indication that a lot of people were leveraging these flexibilities, especially in tight-knit rural communities where there may be a stigma associated with accessing that kind of care, um, that they were actually getting new care, new treatment. So very promising. And um, yeah, we, we definitely are looking forward to 2023 to try and um, move forward, keeping that care uh, access point in place for folks. You know, that uh, that stigma aspect is a great one in a small community if there's a behavioral therapist's office. And yeah, folks might know that's your truck parked up front, but that's not the case if you can call in from home. Julia, with regard to maintaining some of these flexibilities that have provided benefits to rural America, is, is congressional action required? What's the best course of action for folks out here who have benefited from these programs to make our voices heard, to keep them around? Yes, congressional action for a lot of these major changes would be needed. Um, the administration has made um, of the flexibilities uh, uh, last through the end of 2023 that it that flexibility to access care from the comfort of their homes. Uh, that's something that we would need Congress to act on. Um, and so there are several other things that really fall on Congress and the 118th Congress and this new Congress to really work out the future of telehealth. All right. Well, folks, get active if that's something you rely on there in your farm or ranch. Julia, we also see in 2023 the Rural Emergency Hospital Model coming to fruition. Real briefly, could you tell us what that is and why it matters to rural America? This is a new designation, um, similar to how um, a few decades ago, the critical access hospital model came to be. This is a new um, type of uh, provider that we can look forward to converting some of our current hospitals that are struggling into this new type of model. Um, as we go forward, we see <clears throat> a lot of rural hospitals have struggled for decades. Um, a lot of closures came um, over the past 10 years. and one of the reasons for that is they have very low inpatient rates. Many people drive a little further to go to a major metro area, bypassing sort of their local community hospital for many types of services. Well, hopefully this new designation will allow those rural hospitals some additional flexibility there out in the countryside. Folks, we have been speaking with Julia Harris. She is the Senior Policy Analyst on the Health Policy Project over at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And you can find out more about their policies and the writings they've done specifically on the rural healthcare marketplace and that environment by going to bipartisanpolicy.org. We had that conversation with Julia this past Wednesday, looking ahead to healthcare needs in 2023. And folks, when we come back, we'll be picking up a conversation we had on Monday with Sigrid Johannes of the Public Lands Council, discussing some of the changes that are coming on the endangered species list. And we're gonna talk about the health of AM radio with our friend Brian Winnikins of WRDN Radio, Durand, Wisconsin. Stick around, more AOA coming up after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. 
Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks, to AOA. I appreciate you tuning into the show today, as I appreciate it every day. We strive to bring relevant information that matters to agriculture. And a lot of that information in ag comes to us over the AM side of the radio dial. There have been some recent announcements here over the past couple of weeks, largely from Ford Motor Company, relating to the future of AM radio, and that sparked some discussion at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual meeting here just about a week and a half ago in Kansas City. One of the folks I caught up with was Brian Winnikins. He's the owner and farm director at WRDN Radio, and we talked about this very issue, and I was grateful to have that opportunity. Joining me to bring us up to speed on what's happening here in the auto space and with AM radio is Brian Winnikins. He's the owner of Farm Broadcaster at WRDN, served as past president of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Good morning and uh, thank you. Let's talk about what Ford announced, Brian, with their electric vehicles coming in 2023. They're making some changes. What is one of them? Well, the big changes is in their Ford F-150 Lightnings. They are going to take out uh, the uh, AM receiver, so they won't provide AM radio on those uh, new F-150 Lightnings. Those are the electric uh, versions of the pickup truck. So the all-electric Ford Lightnings, a pickup truck used uh, in theory by farmers and contractors, folks who tune in to AM radio, won't have it. Brian, what has Ford said? What's their rationale for a move like this? Their reasoning is, is that it's too expensive to uh, have the receiver be able to uh, receive AM radio because of the electric motor. That's They're saying it would cost too much. Okay. All right. Now, is that legitimate to you, Brian? I mean, AM radio is vital for so many folks who I think in particular drive pickup trucks. Has Ford responded to any complaints or concerns on this issue? Not yet. Uh, for myself personally, um, I don't... I don't agree with that, that it costs too much. Um, they have had AM receivers in their prior electric vehicles already. So uh, to me, I don't, I don't agree with that. Mike, even in my 1961 Oldsmobile 88 that I had in high school, that had a tube AM radio with a big generator on it, not an alternator, a generator, which is an electric motor. One day the AM radio wasn't working. It was getting all kinds of interference. 
I worked at a service station. It was a $3 part, a condenser. Replaced it and everything worked fine. There are ways that they can do this. And, and again, a, a $70,000 vehicle potentially, even if it would cost 50 bucks for them, I mean, really? Someone's going to spend $70,000 and they can't even get AM radio on it? Uh, yeah. I, and, and Brian, I mean, this is already happening. I know you've spoken with a lot of folks who are passionate defenders of AM radio and the service it brings, particularly to rural communities across the state. And you've had listeners, as I understand it, who have noticed that perhaps radio quality has been declining in these vehicles. What's what's happening and what should we be listening for when we're buying a new vehicle? Well, when when I when with my station, uh, my engineer who helped design the AM stereo, AM Sequam stereo, he converted us to AM stereo here uh, last year. And a lot of farmers, they have old work trucks that have an AM stereo receiver and they noticed right away. I had a bunch of them call me and or stop down to the station and they always said the same thing. Well, my old work truck from the, the 90s. The radio sounds better than my $70,000 truck that I have now. Why is that? And it's because they've lowered the quality of the receivers to the point to save money to the point that the receivers really, it's not that I'm sending a bad signal out. It's the receiver in that vehicle is just a poor quality receiver. And frankly, to me, and even to some of my farm listeners, they say that's unacceptable. Yeah, you'd think, especially with the stickers that are being hung on the, the the dashboards of some of these new vehicles when they're in the parking lot. Brian, I know this was a topic of conversation there at NAFB, and I know you've worked a lot with the FCC over the years on various licensing issues. Uh, Nathan Simmington, one of the commissioners, had the chance to speak at NAFB. Can you talk a little bit about what, what were his remarks? How did they see this shift towards AM or, uh, I guess, against AM radio on the part of these manufacturers? Well, Commissioner Simmington, you know, he pointed out that farmers, the majority of farmers are still relying on AM radio uh, for not only the listening to this show, but uh, the, their local farm broadcaster, local high school sports, uh, church services, community thing, things like that. It's a quality of life issue. And Commissioner Simmington said, you know, the vehicle manufacturers are asking for spectrum, okay, for the autonomous vehicles. Well, then the FCC should be saying, okay, you know, we'll we'll look into that, you know, to provide that spectrum. But you have to also serve the public interest in providing decent quality AM and FM receivers uh, in your vehicles. And that, that was one of the big things that I took away from that. But Commissioner Simmington is a very big supporter. He feels that AM radio is still very important. Part of it, the reason is, is because he grew up on a farm. And that's what his parents relied on and, and, and a lot of folks rely on every day, even to listen to this show. They that's are the listening to, to AM radio and to say, well, just stream it. Mike, in, in, you know, for, for listeners listening right now in my area in western Wisconsin, where there's, there's a lot of terrain issues and, and poor Internet service, North Dakota, South Dakota, rural Minnesota, rural Iowa they wouldn't be able to listen to your show. And that's not fair to them. It, 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 especially, exactly especially, right. especially after buying a $70,000 vehicle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just not right. You expect with basic technology as it continues, and AM radio, we've had it for over 100 years. It is trusted. It has existed. It has, you know, put food on on my plate personally for the majority of my, uh, my life. I'm a big proponent of AM radio, and it comes with so much more. Brian, one of the things, you, know, you go to streaming, go to all this stuff, that ignores, to my mind, the crucial service that, that farm directors and that rural stations play in small communities. Brian, WRDN, you're out there covering local events, you're covering farm stories. These things wouldn't happen if, if AM radio were to go away. It's vital to providing I, this level of information, isn't it? You're right. And, and, and I always tell people this, yes, like we do streaming, we do the, those things, but without the radio station, none of that other stuff happens. And even on our station website, we stream audio. You want to hear how good AM radio can sound. If you go to our website and you listen to our stream, you are listening to an AM stereo receiver. You're not listening to it through the control board. You're listening to a radio when you listen to our stream and it's an AM stereo and I will put our signal up against any signal out there and how it sounds. And I, 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 sh I, sh I let a, a couple people at NAFB listen to the station when we were at convention 
through the stream. Again, it's a radio you're listening to. And they were like, why haven't we been doing this all along? The technology is there. We can do it. It's just accountants or someone is saying, well, let's save a few bucks and just take this out. And if they do it to AM, trust me, those of you listening to FM, those station that that the FM is next. The FM will be next. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Nathan Simington, the FCC commissioner, mentioned that three quarters of farmers listen to radio five days per week, with 60% of them listening to AM sources. You know, part of the reason this is happening is there's just not too terribly many of us out here in rural America. So this is a fairly easy thing to cut out, they would think. But for those of us who rely on AM radio, Brian, if we're looking at new trucks, we're taking a test drive, we flip it to that AM dial, we don't hear the sound that we'd like to hear, or perhaps it's been removed entirely. What's the best course of action for those of us who need am radios particularly in our high-end vehicles well two things one if you already own a vehicle con contact the vehicle manufacturer through their website and, and complain we have i've done that personally with my my partner's uh, new vehicle we've complained about how, how poor the radio quality is if you're looking at a vehicle and and you take it for a drive and the am does sound terrible Tell the salesperson and tell the general manager of the dealership, this is unacceptable. For a vehicle this much, this is unacceptable. And, and the, the only way we're going to change this is consumers, the farmers. If you care about this, us broadcasters do it. If you care about this, we need your help and we need you to start complaining to all of the vehicle ma manufacturers and say, look, we expect decent receivers for AM and for FM, not just this big infotainment center that frankly, Mike, causes a lot of distracted driving and is really hard to operate. Can we have something really simple? Right, like a dial, like we used to have. I mean, I hate to be old school like that and complain about the infotainment, but I, I'm in your league, Brian. I think they are a bit too much. But the important thing is, folks, look at the AM radio. If you are listening to AOA on the AM side of the dial, and I know a lot of you are right now, this is important stuff. We're not the only show coming. You've probably got great local sources of contact. Be sure to check that. And as Brian said, make your voice heard. They've got to know that this is an important issue for a lot of us out here in rural America. Brian, if we've got listeners who want to hear what am stereo sounds like where can they hear the wrdn stream realcountry1430.com realcountry1430.com brian winnikins thanks for bringing this issue to my attention and thanks for fighting for am radio out there across the country you're welcome well stick around ladies and gentlemen when aoa returns we'll be talking with Sigrid johansson of the public lands council about the listing of the lesser prairie chicken on the endangered species list Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but uh, don't early it up because you'll lose bush bushels. But also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. From that was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risva with this market update. The grain and soy markets are firmer in quiet holiday trade today with markets closing just after noon. Bearish vibes are overhanging the markets as China COVID-19 cases continue to rise and their lockdowns seem to be put back into place. While outside markets are trading on a more positive note on the prospect of the Federal Reserve possibly slowing the pace of interest rate hikes. The VIX is trading below 21 this morning, near its lowest level in three months, reflecting some easing fears on Wall Street. While the dollar index firm this morning to trade near 
We're also seeing 10-year treasuries trading near 3.73%, while yields on two-year treasuries are trading near 4.5%, putting the inversion at its widest level in more than two decades. Now, that doesn't cause a recession, but it does reflect the market's expectation that there will be a recession over the coming year. And crude oil prices are modestly higher to start the trade today. Winter is setting in over Ukraine, where half of Kyiv is dark tonight due to the latest round of Russian missile attacks on infrastructure across the country. It's going to be a long, hard winter as the war lingers and even intensifies. The war isn't so much on the ground right now as it is in the air. Russian troops are losing the ground battles, but missile and drone attacks continue to destroy water and electricity infrastructure, seeking to break the will of the Ukrainian people. Now, Ukraine is reporting that most of the winter crops are planted with area down by roughly 40% versus last year. Most summer crops are harvested with the exception of corn. Roughly half the corn remains in the field as winter sets in. Authorities there fear that corn not harvested will result in lower plantings in 2023 as well. The global markets are seeking to shift that production elsewhere, with the most obvious winner being Brazil. Current prices provide incentive for expansion of corn and soybean production in Brazil, which still has significant bushland that can be converted to cropping without touching the rainforests. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Today is the day after Thanksgiving, so we are revisiting some conversations we've had here in the past couple of weeks of, with folks who have issues that matter to agriculture. One of them are changes to the endangered species list. We're going to be joined here by Sigrid Johannes, the Associate Director of the Public Lands Council, in just a moment to discuss the most recent change in status for the lesser prairie chicken. This was a complex ruling from the Fish and Wildlife Service, and what we've seen is that the lesser prairie chicken is endangered. In the northern parts of its ter excuse me, th threatened in the northern parts of its territory, endangered in the south. And I asked Sigrid, what does that mean? How do these rules break down? Absolutely, Mike. So there are two population segments that are named in this rule that came out from Fish and Wildlife last week. And this is a final rule, meaning it's the culmination of the whole rulemaking process. They've been working through this for several months and we've been engaging along the way. But unfortunately, we're now at the at the final result here. That northern DPS that you mentioned uh, is in southeastern Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and a decent chunk of the Texas panhandle. And that is now going to be listed as threatened. And then that other chunk that you mentioned, New Mexico, and sort of the other chunk of the Texas panhandle is going to be listed as endangered. Now, that poses several uh, challenges and several new um, hurdles that cattle producers have to work around, and that's why we're so concerned about this. Uh, for an endangered species, that's, you know, sort of the, the final listing, if you will, or the final frontier. Incidental take, meaning any any accidental fatalities that take place to the species in the in the course of normal ag operations, those are going to incur the same penalties and liabilities for producers as any other endangered species. So your, your large predators and things that folks might be more familiar with, that now applies to the LPC in that southern region as well. For the other chunk in the northern DPS, where the bird is only listed as threatened, Fish and Wildlife has written a 4D rule, which is a carve out or exemption that is intended to protect 
uh, agricultural producers and other other sort of industries and daily activities from that legal penalty for incidental take. But the big problem here and sort of the biggest thing that PLC and our other folks in the cattle industry are very concerned about is that that 4D rule falls far, far short of anything that would make a meaningful difference for cattle producers. And we are very concerned that that opens them up to a lot of legal liability that is frankly unwarranted and unfair. All right, see, there is a lot to unpack with this particular ruling. So as you mentioned, they broke the lesser prairie chicken habitat into northern and southern. Northern, that's threatened. That's where that 4B rule exists. And so for that 4B rule there in the northern territory, how does it fall short? What are they missing here in ensuring that American agriculturalists can continue to feed the people? That's a great question, Mike. I would argue they're they're missing the entire target. It's not just that they're a little bit off center. They they miss the board entirely. So this 4D rule, as it stands now, uh, and this will take effect on Tuesday, January 24th of next year, 2023. The 4D rule says that uh, legal protections, that exemption under 4D for cattle producers, for anybody grazing livestock out there in LPC habitat only apply if the grazer is following a grazing management plan that has been developed and approved by an agency approved third party. That's a that's a classic Washington sort of word salad. But basically what that means is Fish and Wildlife is going to come up with a list. They haven't done it yet, uh, but they are going to come up with a list of so-called agency approved third parties who are in the position to sign off on grazing plans. Now that sounds pretty insane to most people because I would argue, and most most folks would agree with me, I think, uh, that the person who's best suited to make that decision on grazing management is the person who's been grazing out there for 30 years and knows the land like the back of their hand. Uh, but according to this rule, that power and that authority is now going to move to some sort of third party. We've already asked uh, whether NRCS, for example, under USDA would, would count as a third party because we have quite a few folks, particularly in Kansas, Oklahoma, down the middle of the country who, who have some involvement with NRCS. And we've received a very noncommittal response on that so far. We've received a very lukewarm response, which is, again, very concerning because it makes you wonder, OK, who are the third parties that the service has in mind for this? Who are the organizations? Because if it's not NRCS, and it's not landowners themselves who should really be in the driver's seat here. I can tell you what, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be your cattle groups. It's not going to be your livestock groups. It's going to be your folks who have a vested interest in not seeing grazing taking place on these landscapes. And that's why we're really kind of uh, going going to the mat on this one. And I believe NCBA, PLC, they're not the only groups that will be going to the mat. Chris Kobach recently elected secretary. Secretary, or excuse me, Attorney General in the state of Kansas has long been battling this potential ruling. Is there the likelihood of a lawsuit coming, Secret? You know, I, I don't want to say too firmly one way or the other, Mike, because at the end of the day, NCBA and PLC both take their direction from our affiliates. But I can tell you that over the next few days and weeks, what we're going to be doing before this rule takes effect is meeting with all of our affiliates who are affected by this, meeting with all of the state cattlemen's associations, talking to our partners on Capitol Hill who represent these states and have been working on these issues for a long time and, and coming up with a game plan. And I think at this point, we're considering a full slate of options about what might go into that game plan. All right, we'll be watching for that to play out now. Sieg, I want to take our focus down to the southern DPS, that area in Texas and New Mexico, where the lesser prairie chicken was formally listed as endangered. When does that go into effect? Is it also January 24th, 2023? That's right, Mike. That also will take effect on January 24th of the coming year. And that's, uh, you know, a little bit of a different beast, no pun intended, because again, that DPS in the southern region is endangered. So you are going to see, you know, some new hurdles and some new challenges, decisions that have to be made uh, for folks operating on those lands. And I think it's a, a classic example, frankly, of uh, the federal government kind of getting it backwards here. You know, the LPC, we have seen time and time again, this is bird has been studied for, for decades at this point, they favor heterogeneous grazing acres. That means they favor areas where there's a lot of diverse plant life, different plant heights. Uh, you know, there's some little bare ground patches. You've got a variety of cover. They don't gravitate towards cropland. They don't gravitate towards really uniform sort of grasslands. So a lot of the sort of scrubby or sagebrush landscapes that you see folks grazing cattle and sheep on out in the West, that's where this bird really likes to be. And we have absolutely no evidence 
that they cannot you know, survive, nest, and thrive in areas with livestock. In fact, it's quite the contrary. You tend to find them in those areas and you tend to find those successful nests in agricultural operations like cattle ranches. So, you know, it, this is a, another good example, much like grizzly bears or gray wolves or any other species you want to pick off of the list where the federal government is looking at it from the top down and they're completely missing what the narrative really looks like on the ground. Sieg, for that endangered designation in the Southern DPS, does it cover lesser prairie chicken in the entire state of Texas and New Mexico, or is it just south of the panhandle that it's uh, endangered? Good question. So the rule applies technically to the entire state of New Mexico and uh, a designated portion of the Texas panhandle. I can sh send you the map or your, your users can certainly, uh, you know, shoot us a note and we'll send that map over. Uh, but the the sort of force and effect will only be in areas where the bird is actually found. So while the entire state of New Mexico is covered by the rule, the bird isn't currently found in every part of the state of New Mexico. So you're really going to see this affecting producers in those areas where there's pre-existing habitat currently. All right. So now, see, you mentioned this is the final rule. This is effectively the law of the land beginning there on January 24th, 2023. With that being the case for producers in New Mexico, in Texas, in one of these covered territories, is there anything they need to be doing here in the next month and a half to two months to prepare for this uh, to roll across their grounds? That's a great question, Mike. I think first and foremost, we'd strongly encourage anybody who thinks they're going to be impacted by this to get in touch with their local uh, livestock association, whether that's their local NCBA affiliate or a, a different you know, state level cattle association. We'd strongly encourage you to get in touch with them now. Get on their radar, because as we move forward with this and we're you know, putting together uh, letters, comments and, and potentially other actions that we might take against this rule, uh, we're going to need those firsthand stories. We're going to need that strength numbers and we want to hear from you. I'll also say for what it's worth, you know, I I don't work for them, but Farm Bureau is also very involved in this issue. So if you're a Farm Bureau member, it's also a good time to give that, that office a call and let them know that this is something that you care about. And of course, as always with any of these regulations, we strongly encourage folks to start the conversation now with their local, uh, with their local offices that represent these regulators. If you have a good relationship with Fish and Wildlife, with uh, an FSA office, with um, you know, if you're out as, as a permittee in the West, maybe your BLM or Forest Service office, build that relationship now because you don't want the first conversation you have with them to be when when they're coming after you for something or when something's going wrong. You want to have that pre-existing relationship so you can really talk things through, you know, in practical terms and not just be playing defense all the time. That is certainly the case. And now, Sieg, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that NCBA PLC working with a group of stakeholders to map the roadmap for the future here on this particular issue. Do you have any other indication from the administration that other ESA actions might be coming out soon? That's a great question, Mike. I mean, there's certainly quite a few on the regulatory agenda that was put out a few months ago that the, the White House periodically releases to sort of show where they're headed. The problem is, uh, or rather the opportunity, if you want to look at it as a glass half full, is they can't do all of those things in the next you know month and a half or so. Uh, and when they get into 2023, they're going to be on the back half of uh, you know, President Biden's term in office. They're also going to be dealing with a little bit of a different congressional makeup than they've had so far. So there's some factors that work in our favor to slow some of these things down. But, you know, things like the grazing regs rewrites that's happening over at the BLM, uh, things like uh, a final rule on WOTUS or a final rule on, on gray wolf uh, uh, management. All of those processes are things that, you know, NCBA and PLC are going to stay heavily involved in and either where we can try and prevent, you know, a bad train from moving mm -hmm. faster down the track and where we can't, we're going to push back against those ideas with all the tools that we have available. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to pick up a conversation we had on Wednesday with Robert White, the Vice President of Industry Relations there at the Renewable Fuels Association. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. 
a champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting blindness. Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Megan Woolley. She's Senior Director of Stewardship at CHS, and she serves as the President of the CHS Foundation. We're going to talk about the work the Foundation does. Megan, what areas of giving does the Foundation focus on? So we focus on three main areas, cooperative education, leadership programs, and university partnerships. And we think of our support on a continuum, so reaching the future of ag at all ages. We start with elementary school youth through partnerships with National Ag in the Classroom and state cooperative camps. We reach middle and high school students through 4-H and FFA. And then once students are in college, we're supporting them through scholarships and curriculum at 25 different partner colleges and universities. Wow, Megan, I understand this is the first year for the foundation to be supporting grants to teachers. Can you tell us why that's an important issue? It is. Ag teacher recruitment and retention has been a major focus for the CHS Foundation for several years through our partnership with the National Teach Ag Campaign. And we recognize that ag teachers are often the first introduction most students have to agriculture and thus the important roles that these teachers can play in a student's life. So typically we've supported teachers through state and national partnerships, but with it being our 75th anniversary this year, we wanted to try something a little bit different. And I'm really excited to share that we're awarding $75,000 directly to teachers. So we are really excited about the opportunity to support teachers directly in all the great work that they do. That is fantastic. Folks, we've been talking with Megan Woolley. She's the Senior Director of Stewardship at CHS and serves as President of the CHS Foundation. Megan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. And thanks to you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, Overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but uh, don't early it up because you'll lose bushels. But also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. From- that was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. 
AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this day after Thanksgiving. Before we go for the day, I wanted to check in on what's developing in the biofuel space. I was joined by Robert White, Vice President of Industry Relations at the Renewable Fuels Association, to discuss it. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You know, before we get into how retailers are approaching the biofuels industry here in 2022, Robert, I want to talk about a joint letter that was signed by the ethanol industry, many groups in the ag industry, and importantly, the American Petroleum Institute, one of the the voices of America's fossil fuel industry. They've all come together, Robert, for the first time ever to sign a letter. What are they advocating for? Well, it's a nationwide approach to fixing the summertime rule around E15 that we've had a problem with and been struggling with uh, for 10 years now. So it's an exciting announcement, exciting time. We hope the legislation gets filed soon. And with that laundry list of supporters from oil, ag, and ethanol, we hope it goes through quickly. Absolutely. Robert, what was it that has brought the oil industry onto the side of ethanol here when it comes to E15? Well, there's a couple of things and, and obviously personal opinions here, but it's the notion that liquid fuels need to decarbonize. So more ethanol will allow them to do that and hopefully allow liquid fuels to continue on as more and more f- people uh, see EVs as the only option going forward. And then, of course, the Midwest governor's effort where several uh, Midwest governors were opting out of the E10 waiver and sort of creating a, a market where refiners would have to lower the RVP of all fuel, not just for E15, but all fuel this coming summer. So in, it was in their best interest to come to the table, obviously. Uh, we think that E15 will, again, help lower prices going into the future, and that's good news for everyone, including consumers. It certainly is. And Robert, now here I want to talk about how those consumers are accessing the higher blends of ethanol. We've seen a tremendous push towards increasing biofuel availability across the country. And I know you work with a lot of retailers here across the country. And I'm curious, how has the conversation around E85 and E15 changed over the past year? Is there enthusiasm for the product growing? Well, this year uh, couldn't have been any more of a highlight for the higher blends. You know, that it was unfortunate events like the Ukraine and shortage of gasoline uh, that led to these high fuel prices, which again highlighted the opportunity of E15 and E85 to save consumers money. So we did see an uptick in consumers learning about E15 and E85 for the first time. We have seen an uptick in consumption and in turn an uptick in availability because more retailers are looking at the options, especially if their competitor across the street is offering something a dime, 20 cents, 50 cents, maybe even E85 at a dollar plus more discount. Absolutely. And I imagine when they see that happening, they want to get into the game. And I know that we saw in the Inflation Reduction Act a number of tax credits for biofuel producers. Robert, was there anything in there for retailers to encourage higher blend adoption? There was, and it was really an extension uh, by another name of the HBIT program that USDA has had for a number of years now. In fact, the uh, latest round of HBIP funding was over $100 million, and the application window closed last night. So we're fresh on the topic here. But there was $500 million in additional money for infrastructure for ethanol, biodiesel, uh, everything from retailers to rails to maritime. There's a lot of opportunities for ethanol in particular, and we're hopeful that as early as next summer, that next round of HBIP, 100 plus million again, maybe as close, maybe as much as 200 million next summer, again, to further ramp up the availability of these higher blends so more consumers can take advantage of them. That is fantastic. Got those applications in $500 million worth of uh, improved infrastructure should certainly go some ways in helping get more consumers to that biofuel. Robert, I'm curious about geographic impact. We talked earlier this year about the price of E85 in California and how much more cheaper it was compared to conventional fuel. I imagine California has been a hotspot. What other states have proven to be highly receptive to ethanol here in this past year? Well, you're really seeing it anywhere it's available. I mean, I I look to the example of sheets. Uh, They are predominantly in the East Coast region as far west as Ohio. They did summer promotions around the 4th of July, and yesterday they just announced 
for a week-long uh, promotion around Thanksgiving, they're selling E15 for $1.99, Mike. And that is a 52% discount in some cases to E10 throughout their 368 stations that cover North Carolina, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. And so where these new stations are opening up, even if it's E85, it's many times for the first time in those communities. So you have people that may have had a flex fuel vehicle for a number of years, but never had seen or had the opportunity to use E85. And then when you see that E15 price, of course, you're pulling in. Of course, you're asking if you can use it. And with 96% of the vehicles on the road today approved for E15, good chance you are uh, eligible to do that and obviously at a strong discount. Yes, that is the case. There is that strong discount driving consumer behavior. Robert, looking ahead to this next summer, of course, we don't yet have E15 approved for year-round sale, although that letter hopefully is going to push in that direction. In the meantime, how are retailers grappling with us with this uncertainty? This winter, do you expect them to sit on their hands and wait to see if that legislation moves forward? Well, I, I think we're seeing a lot of previous year's grant programs putting steel into the ground now. So I do expect that increase in availability to continue. But there are plenty that are wondering when that resolution will come. But I've talked to many. I was out at the Sigma annual conference in California two weeks ago, and many retailers believe that between the Midwest governor's approach, between this API collective approach that you just heard about this morning, that we will get this done in time, whether it's next summer or the following. But our goal is definitely set on uh, May 1st of 2023 to have this uh, put to bed once and for all, and E15 can finally have a level playing field. Finally, leveling that playing field for E15, a long-term goal for the ethanol industry. Folks, that was Robert White, the Vice President of Industry Relations at the Renewable Fuel Association. Tune in on Monday. We'll be back with more AOA. The markets will be trading. We'll probably be seeing some action there on the screens, and we'll be talking markets here on AOA. We'll also be talking weather with our friend John Varenik of DTN Weather. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. At Bravant's. Our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons.